As I do every Sunday morning, I invite you to open your Bibles, find your way to the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul's first letter, 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. Again, we're going to be reading verses 7 to 12. We started off chapter 2 last week. I've entitled my message with the very same title, Entrusted with the Gospel, because I want to tell you these verses come, uh, today's text comes out of the same uh, thrust or the same vein that last week we began to uncover. As I, uh, we walked through last week, if you remember, I'm going to you see the screen there. I'm going to put up the verse that we began with last week because I want you to see that today's text is a continuation of what we did last week. You remember that Paul began his letter by giving thanks to God for the things he saw in the Thessalonians. When the gospel came to them, the things he saw and how they responded to it. And now he's turning and looking at it from the other perspective and helping them to see the way in which the gospel came to them from their own side, from Paul and Silas and Timothy's side, as they came to the Thessalonica. And he says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. And he's gonna, he began to walk that out. Now the bridge verse from last week to this week is actually also a verse we read out loud last week, but I think you could make the case belongs either with last week's text or with this week's text or as I'm proposing to you, really kind of both. It's a bridge. For in verse 6, he began to say this. He was talking about, this is what we read last week. He said, we did not seek glory from people, whether it was from you or from others. And then he says this line right here. He says, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. He raised the issue to them that we could have. We came to you, and we had precious truth from God, and we were sent by God, and we saw ourselves that way. We had a message from God, and we unashamedly walked into your town, and we began to proclaim to you that we have this message. And having done so, we could have demanded some things as apostles. We could have demanded some things as messengers of God, but we didn't. We chose not to. This week, I think, we'll uncover some of the reasons why we chose not to. So read with me now, with that in the background, or that having led up to, read with me as we continue this conversation. I'm going to read verses 7 through 12 this morning. But we, he says, even though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Father God, thank you again this morning for the word. It is precious. It is living. It is active. It is right and true. There's no mistake in it. It is what we need to live our lives by. It reveals who you are to us. It reveals who we are to us. It reveals what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. It reveals what you want from us as an 
as we receive what Jesus has done. Thank you for this, these words that Paul wrote, inspired by your Holy Spirit. And I ask again this morning that you unfold it to us, that as we are hungry for you, for your word, that you would feed us by your word this morning. Thank you that we can trust in what it teaches us and we can live our lives by it. And you've given us these promises in your word that say that when we will meditate on your word, when we will neither stray to the right or left from your word, when we will live according to the commands you've given us, that that is the key to success and prosperity in our lives. Teach us this morning, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, the focus of the message, as we talked about them being entrusted with the gospel, the focus of the message was on the proclamation of that gospel. You notice how many things Paul said last week that had to do with the things that they said. When they came in Thessalonica, he said, we proclaimed the gospel of God to you. We did so without error. We did so without any impure motives. We did so without any pretext for greed. When we came to you, we were not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. We were not trying to, to get you to believe something wasn't true. We did so not for, your, for our own glory or trying to gain things for us. We did so because it was the true and right gospel of God. And all that was focused on what was coming out of their mouths. And today we're going to turn the corner. He said we could have demanded some things as apostles. We could have said, hey, we're bringing mighty truth to you, truth that's going to change your lives, truth to which you will thank us for bringing to you. And they did indeed do that. But he said when we proclaim something, something else was going on. And that's something else that was vitally important was how we ourselves behave. So I'm going to, for, the, for the, the main point I'm making out of the text today, I'm going to go right in the middle of our text. It's in verse 10. He said, you are witnesses. God is also witnesses. You are witnesses, God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our, what? The words we said? The message we brought? The things we proclaimed, the gospel, was that what he's talking about? No, he says, how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct was among you. The way we behaved, the things we did or did not do, the, the ways you could observe us as we lived. And here we see, once again, it's not the only place in Scripture, but here we see, once again, how important, how vital it is that we have the gospel and we proclaim the gospel, no mistake about that, but when it comes, it needs to come from people who have also demonstrated by their conduct that the gospel has made a difference in their life. I probably don't have to say too much about this, I'm sure you can figure this out, but what, would it, what might it have been like if Paul would have come and would have proclaimed the gospel of God to them and at the same time acted unjustly towards them or lived however he wanted to, stayed up late and lived however wildly he would have wanted to, fed his flesh, preached powerful messages of how great God's gospel is and Jesus is and turned around and engaged in idol worship in their, in their temples there in Thessalonica or been dishonest with them, or stolen from them? How would that have gone? How receptive would they have been to the gospel? Would we read about a church in Thessalonica? 
Most likely not, right? And you can see in sort of big terms, right, if Paul would have been this awful, blatantly sinful guy among them, it would not have worked. But I say that to help us to see that the same is true. He says our conduct was holy and righteous and blameless. And we see the length Paul went to, we're going to see as we walk through this, but the length Paul went to to make sure that there was not anything they could pin on him. That there was not any reason they could say, well, what he says sounds good, but based on some character that came out of him or some action that came out of him or some behavior that they saw, they could say, but I'm not sure. He said, I... These are borrowing a paraphrased word from another text or letter, letter they wrote. But he said, I want there to be no roadblock or no hindrance or no reason for them to not receive what Christ has done because of me. I assure you, reading the writings of Paul, he had no illusion that he was perfect, that he actually made no mistake among them. But let's look at the three words that he chose. I'm going to put them up and I'll just put them all three up there so you can see them. Holy, righteous, and blameless. Notice in his verse he appeals. He said, you were witnesses. You saw this. You, you, you saw me when I was among you. But God also is a witness. And that first word, holy, he's actually, I believe, referring to how he was set apart to God. Our holiness is unto God, not unto other people, right? He said, you saw that I was set apart for God. That, that meant he, the way he lived his life, it became obvious. Now, we can ask these questions all the way through. We can ask these questions all the way through the Bible, all the time in our lives. Do we? Do we sincerely and honestly ask those questions to ourselves? Is it possible for people to look at you or to me by the conduct of my life and to say, excuse me, there's a person that is holy, that is set apart for God. It's obvious. I can see it. I can tell by the way he behaves and acts, by the things he does or doesn't do. I can tell that that person is, is set apart, that he, that, that Merlin is set apart to God. He said, you saw this in front of you. God is my witness as well. I was holy unto God. The second word, by the way, righteousness has a lot to do with God as well. But I think in this context, because of the devil witness he's appealing to, he can say, I was also right or equitable or just with you. I treated you with righteousness. I was, I was just among you. I didn't, I didn't unjustly treat you. I know it's a lot easier to say things this way because it helps sort of make it more comfortable for us, but you all know people, right, that proclaim very clearly that they're followers of Jesus Christ, and yet their business practices aren't very just. Or the way that they treat people in the relationship that they have isn't very equitable or just, and it ruins their witness, Right? But of course, I'm not ever very interested in making us feel very comfortable. Which means I have to ask you the question, what do people see when they look at you? Does the way you treat other people and relate to them and, and hold your relationships, sometimes you have power over other people and sometimes you are under them in 
that relationship. But the, is it obvious from the way that you relate to people around you that people would say, that's a righteous person, that he's just and equitable? In that regard, I think Paul is saying, you saw how I acted, and I was set apart to God, and you saw how I acted, and I was righteous towards all of you. Therefore, I can say I was blameless in both regards, before God and before men. And you see right away that that sets something up, right? Because sometimes, sometimes there's, we, we want to have a tension between those two, and Paul's saying, no, there is not. I'm right before God and before all of you at the same time. I'm blameless before you. There's no thing that you can point at to me and say, well, this is why I rejected the gospel. Paul is going to, I'm just going to keep walking through this text. As he is, has these words here, holy and righteous and blameless, and he's talking about his own conduct, we're going to see as we walk through the letter that this is actually what he's going to be encouraging for them. If you would read, we're going to get to this verse in chapter 3. He's saying, I want your hearts to be established so that you are blameless in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of the Lord Jesus. If you've been paying attention and you've been here a couple of weeks, you know that the verse I keep going back to and having you read with me, well, let's just read it together. Again, from chapter 5, verse 23, look at the words that we were just talking about, and now this is what Paul is closing his letter with. Read it with me. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's just recap real quickly, make sure we're on the same page. What is God calling you to? What does God want as a result of your life? According to this right here that Paul is asking for them, what does God want according to your life? He wants you, your whole spirit, soul, and body, he wants all of you to be kept blameless, to be ready, to be able to say when the Lord Jesus Christ returns that People have witnessed and God is a witness that we, I'm holy, I'm set apart for him and righteous and I'm blameless through and through. <laughs> Those pesky questions keep coming up. Is that your goal for your life? I can tell you that's what God's calling you to. Is that what you want out of your life? Is that your goal? That you are blameless at the coming of Christ? Or do you have other goals? Do you have other things you're pursuing or wanting to see? Other things that are more important? Well, Paul says, I'm going to show you, I'm going to illustrate to you how my conduct was holy and righteous and blameless in your sight and in God's. I'm going I'm to illustrate it to you using two very well-known, very common examples that all of you can understand. He said, first of all, I was like a nursing mother taking care of your own children among you. Though I could have come with the weight and authority of an apostle, I didn't. I find it interesting that he says this one first, given the position of women in ancient cultures and what a strong contrast is now presented. I came to you as a teacher, as an apostle, as a messenger of God. That's what the word apostle means. As a messenger of God. I came to you in that way. And however, when I was among you, I was like a nursing mother with her children. I went to the, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, like a nursing mother with her children. How is a nursing mother? 
Well, a nursing mother is gentle, right? He says, we, not just himself, we were gentle among you. We were mild and kind. There was kindness. We were gentle among you. But he goes on, because when you think of mothers, he nails some of the things that mothers, that's true about mothers, right? Now, this is my word, not directly out of the text, because I wanted to try to summarize what he was saying. But he says, we were willing to share with you not just what we said, the words we said, the gospel of God, but we were willing to share ourselves with you. I use the phrase self-sacrificial. It's not just about the message we gave, but we gave ourselves to you. We limited ourselves. We surrendered ourselves. We expended ourselves for you, for your sake. Isn't this what moms do? Come on, dads. Isn't this what moms do? This is what they do. They're gentle among their children, and they sacrifice themselves. They expend themselves. Maybe some of us dads are willing to get up during the night when we have little babies. Remember, this is a very clearly a nursing mother. That's the picture he's drawing. I always said in our own home, some of the most difficult time frames in our lives were the weeks just prior to birth and the weeks just after birth. Because my wife is in a constant state of never having enough sleep, of, of like body being in all kinds of changes and transition, emotions being all over the place, never getting any of her own time. She's at the beck and call of this baby that was just born. And she does so willingly. She is willing to not just give instruction verbally, but to give of her own body, her own self. The next phrase I want to bring to you is right there, right out of the text. He says, we worked, we labored, and we toiled. Two different words to illustrate how hard, what kind of effort they put in. We labored and toiled. And then if that's not enough, he says, by the way, we did so night and day. Once again, think of nursing mother with her own children. We labored and toiled night and day among you. Now, Paul actually, if you're reading the letters of Paul, you understand that he actually, this is a, this is a, a, a buzzword, a phrase, that, a word we use today all the time, so I can say it this morning. Like, he meant this literally, right? He literally labored night and day. We know from these other letters that he refused to be supported by those people he was preaching among and was sharing them. And, and so he worked. He himself worked physically to be able to support himself again so that there could never be a reason for them to reject the gospel because of what he was doing. Now, he made it very clear that he could have. That, in fact, he deserved it. But he never demanded it. Labored and toiled night and day. Now, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I was not planning, I'm not planning on going into depths and details about mothers. Actually, I preached a Mother's Day message, not quite a year ago now, last Mother's Day, I preached a Mother's Day message out of these very verses. And so I encourage you, if you want to dig more into that topic of, of uh, how mothers, uh, what, how mothering is, is discipling and how these words that Paul used to describe his own conduct among the Thessalonians uh, leads to people believing in Jesus, I, I dug into that quite a bit in that message. You can go back and find it. I'm sure it's still available on our website. But Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, these words. It's just the first part of the verse. These words. I'm going to turn around so I don't have to flip in my Bible to read them. He said, I will most gladly spend 
and be spent for your souls. Now there's times when there's verses out of the, what we're studying that, that impact me, but this week as I was reading these verses and studying, this line probably impacted me personally more than anything else. How sincerely Paul says those words and they made me wonder for myself. But of course, I say this for your own benefit this morning as well, but made me wonder how willing I am to say those words for the people around me. I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. There's such a temptation for us all the time, right? People are needy. People have all kinds of things that are going on. People struggle with things. People have all kinds of ideas. Some of them are correct, some of them are not correct. People have all kinds of things that they need to work through. And there's such a temptation to say sometimes, I'm just tired of that and I want to just have some of my own time. So I'm continually challenged by the saints that go before us that have this kind of mindset that say, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I've thought of this first of all as I thought of my own Savior. And I thought of what it means to me that Jesus looked at me and said, Merle and I will gladly spend and be spent for your soul. And then I thought of how unfair it is for me to not have a similar mindset with those people that God has placed in my life. My wife, my children, my church family. Because I know what it does for me when I think of when someone is serious about that, and I want you to know or think about the same thing or how it does for you so that by that means it can allow us to see how valuable it is for us to look at each other and to say, don't say you're a bother. Don't think you're a bother to me in my time or the things that cost me. You're not a bother. I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. What a horrible thing for me to show up in front of the judgment throne someday and recognize that I withheld some of my own time or my own talents or the own, my own things, the things I have around me. And I'm not saying this is how it always works. But to find out that someone walked away from who Jesus was or didn't receive who Jesus was or couldn't understand who the Father was because I was unwilling to be spent. I'm not saying these things to make you feel guilty or to put a guilt trip or to have us feel like we're going to get there and we're going to... But I have this feeling that when we get before Jesus someday, that it will be in an instant so startlingly clear how little we gave for him. How much more I could have surrendered to him. How much more I reserved for myself what I had no right to reserve. 
like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul says, I came among you. You saw my behavior. I didn't restrict myself. I didn't hold back. I poured myself out for your sake. And I will gladly do it again. He turns the corner and says, by the way, I can look at the other side of this relationship and see that like a father with his own children, I was that way with you too. Again, I'm just going to move forward. The words are right there. Again, I don't know if you've been noticing, we're getting all these triplets. Paul apparently loves triplets. He says, I exhorted. We exhorted, not I. We exhorted. We encouraged you. We charged you. I should make sure I'm not keeping up with myself, am I? We charged you. Now, that word charge is an interesting word. You see, I put in parentheses, be a witness, because those first two words, exhort and encourage, are typically, most typically, and not, 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 not mistakenly so, but most typically are referring to things that come out of our mouth, right? Like if I exhort you, it's typically something I'm saying. If I encourage you, it's typically something I'm saying. And when I charge you, that's how the English word is there in the last one in the ESV. And if I charge you, it's almost always something I'm saying. But the word there is actually the word martyreho which means to be a witness. And you could use it in the context of I testified because that's what the word testimony comes from is martyreho as well. But I think what he's really trying to say because it's in a section where he's completely focused on his conduct among them, I think he's trying to shift that to help them to see that exhortation and encouragement comes best out of a conduct, out of an example, a a living example. In fact, as I looked at those or thought of those two words, the words exhort and encourage in the Greek, both of them start with this prefix para, P-A-R-A, which means beside or, or near to or alongside of. So to parakaleho, to call someone near, and to paramuthehamai, which is a really fun word to learn, means to, to relate alongside of someone. Sometimes the translation is to console them, to encourage them. But it struck me that both of those, you have to be beside someone to do it. You're either going to where they're at, or more likely, in Paul's case, he's saying, I'm here and I'm, I'm bringing you to where I'm at. It's the same kind of mindset that says, follow me as I follow Christ. I was a witness to you, an example to you, and now you received it and you become an example to others. You see, we've already bumped into this, right? So he's just saying the same thing. He's saying, like a father, now listen carefully, fathers, like a father, I exhorted you, which means I behaved in a way that I could then say, come to where I'm at. I encouraged you, which meant I could say, I could come alongside, let me bring you to where I'm at. I can't take you somewhere that I'm not at, that you don't see in me that I'm already at, right? And in doing so, I was a testimony to you. I was a witness to you. And all of those things were to bring something out in you. And that's the last part of verse 12. I was doing these. I was calling you to where I was at. I was bringing you alongside of where I was at, encouraging you to come where I was at. I was, I was being a testimony to you. I was presenting a picture to you so that you also might walk. And again, this is a word of action, right? This is a word of conduct, a word of what your life looks like. You might walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's make sure we don't miss the negative that's left standing behind when he says the phrase, God is calling you into his own kingdom and glory, because that means he's calling you out of your own kingdom and your glory. That's the calling near, you were here, you used to be here in your kingdom, 
You used to be here living for your glory, to fulfill what you want to, but I called you alongside of me and I encouraged, I, I wanted you to come stand beside me and I was a testimony and a witness for, that for I was that, that I'm no longer in my kingdom or living for my glory. I'm where God called me to be, which is in his kingdom and for his glory. And you saw that. You were able to visualize the words I was saying to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You saw that, and that helped you to respond. You know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. It accomplished something. And it accomplished something because the Spirit of God was working, and he called Paul to that place. But it accomplished something because the gospel was proclaimed, and when the gospel was proclaimed, it was backed up with the actions of people that demonstrated that that gospel was real. And our coming to you was not in vain. I don't think I have to make this application, but let me just make it clear in case we're wondering. If we hope to have any success in taking the gospel or having people receive the gospel that don't know it or to begin to walk in the gospel or to accept Christ as their savior or to give their life for him or whatever you want, whether it's the first initial like coming in the kingdom or whether it's the continuing of walking on and walking in maturity towards Jesus and Christ-likeness, then we must understand that it has to come out of our mouths proclaimed of what the gospel is and what it teaches and it must be demonstrated in our own lives. You cannot call someone alongside of you if you're not there, right? It's physically impossible. I can't call you to come up next to me if I'm not here, right? You understand that. It's just a, it's just a logical thing. This brings me back this morning to the two questions that I think we, I, I posed last week. And I want to take a little time treating this week. As we walked through last week and I began to emphasize that they proclaimed the gospel of God, I asked the question, do you know the gospel? Do I know the gospel of God? Do I know what the gospel is? Can I, could, can I proclaim it? Am I able to? I gave the example of me where I failed one time because I was not able to say, to proclaim the gospel of God, much to my shame. Second question that came behind that is that we continue to walk through that because Paul used this phrase. He said, because we have been entrusted with the gospel, then we speak. That's, the, that's the, the impetus behind that. If I've been entrusted with the gospel, then I speak. And I, we address the speaking part. Do I know how to speak it? But then we have to go back and say, well, have I been entrusted? Or was Paul entrusted and I'm not? Or is, is, is the message I'm preaching to us simply about understanding what Paul saw in his role? And all of you get to sit there thankfully and say, whew, that's not me. We have to wrestle with that question, right? Have I been entrusted with the gospel? Because if I have then I have to speak it. And if I have to speak it, I better know it. And I learned this morning that it's only gonna be effective if I actually also am actually living it out myself. I'd like to start with the second question first because I think that's what drives the rest of it. Have I been entrusted with the gospel? Have you ever actually even stopped and asked yourself this question? You know, I, it, it occurs to me it's entirely possible for us to go to church and we hear things all the time and we just sort of know them and hear, yeah, yeah, we're supposed to be missionaries, we, we, we give to missions. But have you ever actually stopped yourself and personally asked, am I entrusted with the gospel? Have I been entrusted with the gospel? I hope you have. If you haven't, I would encourage you to. 
because I'm going to tell you, you're probably not going to see a lot of, of change in your life if you don't feel like you have been. It's just, a, it's just me trying to pull you into some place that you're not. Now, I could take you this morning to Jesus' command. I could take you to Matthew 28, 18 to 20 and say, well, you know, Jesus said all authority is his. Bit of my paraphrase. All authority is his. And he's commanded us to go into, as we go, go into all the nations, as we go into all the world, that we are supposed to make disciples. We're supposed to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to teach them to obey all that he's commanded. And he's always with us until the very end of the age. I could go to that command and say, therefore, I can tell you you're entrusted with the gospel. I could go to Paul's longer, more descriptive uh, uh, walking out in the second letter to the Corinthians. I think it's in chapter 5 going into chapter 6. I think it's chapter 5, chapter 6. It's in your handout. I think I put down the... I did not. I didn't put the reference there. I think it's chapter 5 into 6. He says, the love of Christ compels me. When the love of Christ compels me, I no longer look at people in the physical, but I look at them in the spiritual, and I see I have a role to play in their life. Again, this is my paraphrase. And he says, I want to see myself, and I want you to see yourselves. We should see ourselves as ambassadors for Christ. You know what an ambassador is, right? An ambassador is someone who stands in place. He's got a, he, he represents someone else here. He says, we're ambassadors for Christ. It's as if, these are his words, it's as if God is making his appeal through us. He would say, you've been entrusted with the gospel. We're begging you. Don't let God's grace be in vain, but turn to him. He's knocking on the door. Turn to him. Today is the day of salvation. That's from those, those past. I could turn to that and say, we've been entrusted with the gospel. I could turn you to the very simple little command. It's not really a command. Simple summarized version that John gave in his first letter. You know, we all know John 3.16, right? Do you know what 1 John 3.16 says? For you, I put it up here on the screen so we could see it, so you don't have to memorize it necessarily or have it memorized. This is what it says. It says, by this we know love. This is how we know what love is, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus did. And then he says this, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. I could point to that and say, brothers and sisters, we don't have a room to argue about this. We have been entrusted with the gospel because isn't this the gospel that Jesus laid down his life for us? And we ought to do so for each other. But I want to actually take us back in this text because I think as we're asking that question, I think Paul actually gave us the answer in the text. For example, I could point to you and say, look at the two illustrations he uses for how they behaved. He could have used lots of illustrations. He could have used lots of examples. He could have gone to lots of places and, and shown how his conduct matched the teaching of the gospel. But look at the two things he mentioned. He said, like a mother and like a father. And immediately we have to understand that when he says that, he says it for a reason. Because we are to understand that if we're mothers or fathers, then we've been entrusted with the gospel. Because we have children. We have offspring. We have those that God wants us to raise in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Raised to come to know Him. Raised to come to submit themselves to Him. Be fruitful and multiply, right? What does God want out of our offspring? Out of our children? He wants, oh, out of our marriages, sorry. I'm getting that wrong. It's from, uh, from Malachi. What does God want of our out of our marriages? He wants godly offspring. Now listen, this is not, I'm not saying these things to tell you that I'm telling you you have to have kids and lots of them. I'm telling you that these things are there for us to see that when we become adults, we have been entrusted with the gospel. 
we see that there's those coming after us that we have an, an onus, a burden to declare to them the gospel. I don't think, I think, I mean, Paul could have used other, other examples. He, he could have said, like, like a business owner, I have to take care of my employees. Or I, I, I don't know, he, I, he could have chosen lots of things, like, like, a, like a farmer, he, I, like a shepherd who tends the sheep, right? He could have used lots of examples of how their conduct matched up. But he didn't. He said, like a mother. And immediately every mother in the room knows, I've been entrusted with this gospel. He said, like a father, and immediately every father knows that I've been entrusted with this gospel. There's a responsibility there. But I think even beyond that, because there's probably some of you sitting here thinking, well, that's not me because I'm not a mom or dad. Because the very subject that he's bringing up, I think, gives us the answer. Let me illustrate by asking you this question then. I think I asked this last week too, but I'm going to ask it again. Is the gospel supposed to have an effect on our lives? Is it supposed to be some kind of demonstrable effect on our life when the gospel comes? Is our conduct to change in any way? Is there some kind of teaching that's in scripture that we're to hang on to that makes us believe that when we come to understand who Jesus is and we come to receive the truth of what Jesus has done by grace through faith we're saved, that it changes us in some way? that there's a change in behavior we put off and put on, that there's different virtues or fruits that come out of us, that it, that it changes or sets in focus how we're to relate within our families, husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and children, and how we're to relate among our, with our church families, among brothers and sisters, or how we're to relate to our unsaved pagan neighbors, or how we're to relate to authorities over us, or how we're to live with an expectation, a sober waiting of Jesus' return. Is any of that true? Of course, you, that's a rhetorical question, right? All of that's true. All of that's in Scripture. All of that, I would propose to you, is the central core teaching that the first church believed. That they said you must believe. This is the teaching of Christ. Remember, we're supposed to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey. That's the teaching of Christ. It has an effect, and I would tell you that by virtue of the fact that the gospel is to have an effect on us, that there's something that's supposed to come out of us, our life's supposed to change, that automatically means we've been entrusted with the gospel. It's supposed to be a demonstration to those around us. It's supposed to be an example to those around us. There's no way to go any other direction with that. You can't say, well, I'm supposed to receive the gospel and change, but I'm not entrusted with it to be an example to anyone else around me. Like, I'm, I'm going to do it in the dark. I'm going to do it in the, in the quiet. I'm going to do it in the secret. That's, that's nowhere presented in Scripture. By virtue of that, I think we have to recognize that if we are asking ourselves if we've been entrusted with the gospel, Paul's very own words of how his conduct was to change and was the example that led them to see that the things he proclaimed were correct means that we've been entrusted with it. God intends when we receive the gospel for us to also be entrusted with that gospel. And I told you then if that's true, then we have to ask ourselves this question. Do I know it? I don't know if you did this in the week between last week and this week, but did you actually ask yourself that question? Did you do any practicing? Did you do any pretend scenarios where you were faced with an opportunity to share the gospel with someone and you 
and mentally at least in your mind went through whether you could do that or not. Did you? I'm not going to make you feel bad if you didn't. But I would suggest you missed an opportunity for the Lord to grow you. To consider whether do I actually know the gospel? Am I able to dis, with some simplicity declare what the gospel of God is? When you look at the first number of sermons that were given, most of them by Peter in the book of Acts, you begin to, it begins to emerge what that gospel is. Let me give you, this is, just, this is a bit of my version. It's not special in some way that you have to say, well, this is exactly what I have to say because that's not true. But we understand that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He was talked about before he came. God said he was going to come, and then he came. And when he came, he lived. He went about doing good. He healed people. But he was killed, right? This is where we get central premises of the gospel. Jesus was killed. But three days later, he was resurrected. He came back to life, and many people saw him alive again. Many people saw him alive again. And then he ascended into heaven where he's waiting to come back again. And when he comes back, he will be the judge of the living and the dead. That's where the gospel of God is. And anyone who repents of their own sinfulness against God and believes, trusts in Jesus Christ, will receive forgiveness of their sins, will become part of a new community of people, will change their kingdom, their allegiance, their kingdom. That's will change their kingdom from their old kingdom to God's kingdom. That's where eternal life actually begins. That's the gospel. Do you know it? Can you say it? I'm serious about this. It seems rather hokey perhaps, but if you live with someone else who's in this room, I would encourage you to take time to, I don't know if you want to call it practice, but like make sure you can say the gospel to each other. You know, you can't find a more friendly person to do it with than someone who already believes in the gospel, Right? There's no antagonism there. There's no, there's no doubt there. There's no question you're going to get back about, well, what about, like, it's the safest place you can get. And I'm telling you, if you can't say it to someone who already believes in the gospel, I highly doubt you can say it to someone who doesn't. But I mean this word no, just like the Bible often means the word no. Not just can I say the words. Can I intellectually tell you what the gospel is from the Bible? I mean, do you actually know the gospel? Like, do you know it inside? Is there, is there, is there awareness and is there reception and is it evident? Because that leads us right into what this text is all about, right? I'm going to walk backwards through those questions because the reality is we are to know it, not just up here, but in here. It's supposed to be part, it's supposed to have had its effect on us. That way, when God gives us the opportunities, which he does all the time if we'll avail ourselves to them, but when God gives us the opportunities to proclaim out of our mouth what the gospel is, that we see we've been entrusted with this and it comes out as a demonstration of who we are. That they can't argue with the gospel because of what we are like, right? They can't say, well, you just said that, but that's not what I see in your life. Ouch. Jesus came to change and set me free, then why do I see you walking in bondage? Ouch. 
Jesus is going to be the judge of the living and the dead, then why do you still do this? Ouch, right? If it's an obvious thing, if it's something that it's known in your conduct, may our actions match the words we are to proclaim. And listen, I know you're not, you would never say you're thinking this. You would never consciously think, you would never purposefully think this. But please, let's not be of those who say, well, if it has to be that, then I'm just going to shrink back and I'm not going to act like it or ever proclaim it. Because that's not where God wants us. Because if you've received the gospel, if you're sitting here this morning as a saved believer in Jesus Christ, then you have been entrusted with that gospel. There's a responsibility you have. I believe there's an accountability you will face. What did you do with what you've been given? How did you... How did you handle this great truth that you've been given? God, thank you so much. I know there's so many more things that could be said, and I feel like I, I, we've come to the end of what I need to say. We've come to the end of what I need to say, God, and so I want to just thank you for your word this morning. I pray like I've, I, I don't always say it, but it, it's always in my mind, so I want to pray it out loud this morning. I pray for the things that came from you, that came through my mouth, I pray for them to be, to be received as from you and to, for them to be held up and, and, and bound up inside of us. I pray for those things that did not come from you, that were just Merlin talking, were just my words. Maybe they were incorrect or maybe they just weren't the words that should have been said. I pray for you to remove them by your grace and your sovereignty and your goodness and your love towards us, your faithfulness. Just remove them as if I didn't say them. If I need to be aware of them, I pray that you would make, me, make that known either to me directly or uh, through somebody else so that I can acknowledge something that needs to be acknowledged publicly. God, I want you to be honored and glorified. These are your words, and I want them to be received as your words. So I want to be step out of the way. I want to be just like Paul was. I want to be able to say I step out of the way. It's the proclamation of the word of God. It needs to have its work in us, and I don't want it to be hindered because of me. I thank you this morning, Father, that there's a body of believers here. Oh, oh, Lord, you know. Oh, you know we, are, we, are, we, are, we have not arrived. We, we, are not, we are not at the place where we can look around and say, we, have, we are just nailing this thing. We, we are, we've got this down. We are not in that place, God, and forgive us for our, our arrogant attitudes when we tend to display that sometimes. Help us, God. Show us. Show us how, how magnificent you are, how holy you are, how right you are all the time. But God, I thank you that there's a body of believers here who sincerely want to walk in your way. Help us to continue to open ourselves up to you, to your word, to your Holy Spirit, that we can see those things that hinder us and we can allow you to remove them. We can make decisions to remove them. We can say, I don't want this Jesus set me free. Jesus moved me beyond. Jesus helped me to put this in place. Help me to put off or help me to put on. I pray, God, for the gospel to be truly known among us. I pray for it to truly be the lens with which we evaluate our lives, our own lives, the lives of others, the situations we run into. What does the gospel have to say? What kind of conduct should come out of me when this happens? What kind of response should I have to this? 
Can I say I'm being holy and righteous and blameless? And I pray, God, that as, as we see ourselves being entrusted with the gospel and as having its effect in us, I pray that we would be bold in our proclamation of that gospel to each other, to ourselves where need be, but especially as you give us opportunity to those who do not yet know Jesus. I pray, God, that the gospel may flourish in our midst, and I pray the gospel may go forth from us and flourish, that lives would be changed, that we would have an effect on this community right outside these walls, but that we would have an effect on the communities in which we live and work and operate and have our daily lives. I pray that our families may be affected by the gospel. I pray that uh, as, as our families and as churches, again, as, as, as that bleeds out or as that extends out beyond, that we don't put a bushel over this, what you're doing, but that we allow ourselves to be an example, that we see ourselves in this public conflict we talked about last week, agon, this public conflict in front of people, this wrestling with the, that we have ourselves with our flesh, but yearning to live right before you, surrendering, dying to ourselves living for you, being raised to newness of life by the same glory, God, with which you raised your son, Jesus Christ, back to life. I pray, Father. I pray for this group, for this body, I pray that you would sanctify us completely, that our whole spirit and soul and body would be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we by faith proclaim, God, that you, the one who is calling us to us, to it, will surely do it. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.